You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. A new backdoor, courtesy of the DPRK. The Metabank breach is all over, but the shouting and the suing and the arresting. Risks and opportunities in telecoms shift to the cloud. Cyber risk in healthcare, an assessment of Russian cyber warfare. Robert M. Lee from Dragos assesses the growing value of the ICS security market. Our guest is Cecilia Seiden from TransUnion to discuss their 2022 consumer holiday shopping report. And it's December, which means... Predictions. From the Cyberwire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Thursday, December 1st, 2022. ESET researchers yesterday published a detailed description of the Dolphin backdoor currently being deployed by the North Korean APT Starcraft against targets in South Korea. Also known as APT-37 or Reaper, Starcraft conducts cyber espionage against governmental, military, and industrial organizations of interest to Pyongyang. Dolphin makes its habitation in the cloud— ESET concludes its report with this general assessment. Dolphin is another addition to StarCruft's extensive arsenal of backdoors abusing cloud storage services. After being deployed on selected targets, it searches the drives of compromised systems for interesting files and exfiltrates them to Google Drive. One unusual capability found in prior versions of the backdoor is the ability to modify the settings of victims' Google and Gmail accounts to lower their security, presumably in order to maintain account access for the threat actors. During our analysis of multiple versions of the Dolphin backdoor, we saw continued development and attempts to evade detection. While Dolphin has so far mostly been seen in South Korea, other Asian countries should also be on the lookout. This is no friendly flipper. The gang that hacked Metabank, probably a reconstituted R-Evil, the well-known Russian cybercrime gang, 
has called game over on its dump site and has deposited all the remaining data it stole from Australia's Metabank, announcing Happy Cybersecurity Day, added folder full, case closed. We'd like to say dosvidanya and good riddance, mates, but unfortunately the world is unlikely to have heard the last of our evil. The Australian Federal Police are continuing to pursue them intently and relentlessly, and we heartily wish them good hunting. The AFP intend to solicit the help of the Russian authorities, but this is probably a pro-former gesture. There's little prospect of Moscow's organs handing over members of one of Russia's large and active gangs. Google's Threat Analysis Group has published a report on a commercial spyware framework developed by a Barcelona-based company, Veriston IT, which describes itself as a provider of custom security solutions. The framework, called Heliconia, exploited vulnerabilities in Chrome, Firefox, and Microsoft Defender. While the vulnerabilities have since been patched, Google says it appears likely these were utilized as zero days in the wild. An anonymous submission to the Chrome Bug Reporting Program tipped the researchers off to three distinct frameworks. Heliconia Noise is a web framework for deploying a Chrome renderer exploit, followed by a Chrome sandbox escape and agent installation, while Heliconia Soft is a web framework that deploys a PDF containing a Windows Defender exploit. Heliconia Files offers a fully documented Firefox exploit chain for Windows and Linux. Moody's Investors Service released a report detailing the security implications of the cloud for the telecommunications sector. The telecommunications industry was assessed to have a high-risk categorization for cyber risk. However, the sector has been found to be more dedicated to cybersecurity, ensuring that human resources and funding is available. Telecommunications operators enable broadband internet access and communications, so they are vital to the digital economy. Zero-trust frameworks are increasingly being implemented within the industry to increase security. Newer technologies, especially cloud-centric technologies, have brought new capabilities, but also bring with them a significant expansion of the attack surface. Moody's has also released a sector comment on the not-for-profit and public healthcare sector and associated cyber risk with the industry. The not-for-profit healthcare sector has a very high risk categorization. Digitization and the use of third-party software are growing, keeping cyber risk elevated for the sector. The IBM Security Cost of a Data Breach report is referenced, saying how the healthcare industry worldwide had the highest average cost of a data breach 11 years in a row, with an approximately 30% increase in average cost from 2020. 94% of survey respondents reported having standalone cyber insurance, but premiums continue to increase and limits are being put in place, making the coverage less expansive. Vetting third-party vendors is also important. While most respondents say they assess new vendors, only 76% reassess current vendors. The Economist has a long and thoughtful account of the fortunes of Russian cyber war. One overarching observation is that such warfare is inherently difficult and that it takes long and careful preparation to be successful. So, the disabling attacks against Viasat ground stations in the opening hours of the war had been under preparation for months, 
as had the subsequent wiper attacks against Ukrainian networks. These enjoyed some success, but that success was short-lived and not easy to improvise going forward once the defenders were on the alert for them. They did, however, demonstrate that Russian cyber capabilities weren't negligible and hadn't been grossly overestimated. But there's a flip side to this. Russian cyber operations, like Russian kinetic military operations, also seem to have suffered from sloppiness, careless coordination, and overconfidence. These served the operators poorly against a defender that proved capable, prepared, resilient, and ably supported by allies and commercial partners. Ukrainian capability in defense shouldn't be underestimated either. If Russian cyber operations have largely dwindled to nuisance-level fizzles since March, Ukraine's defenders deserve a great share of the credit. The Wall Street Journal has an interview with Dmitry Smilianets, a reformed Russian cyber criminal who, having served his U.S. sentence, now works for security firm Recorded Future. He offers some insight into the nexus between the Russian underworld and Russia's security services, and on the ease with which criminal gangs shifted into nominal hacktivist mode during Russia's war against Ukraine. The connection is close but complicated. Smilianets said, If we talk about financially motivated hackers, what happens is directly or indirectly, they know someone from the government and they pass information or help in this or other cases. It doesn't mean they're employed or it doesn't mean they're on a paycheck with the state, but there is a connection. Sometimes we see it clear, sometimes not. And they needed little or no inducement to turn to patriotic hacktivism. The ransomware gangs found it an especially easy transition to make. And finally, it's the first day of December. Over on our CyberWire Pro website, we offer a compendium of predictions from industry experts about the way cybersecurity, its challenges, and opportunities are likely to change in the coming year. Some of those changes are evolutionary, extrapolations of trends already visibly at work. Others are more surprising, and in no case will you have to cross anyone's palm with silver to get this fortune told. Check it out at thecyberwire.com slash pro. Coming up after the break, Robert M. Lee from Dragos assesses the growing value of the ICS security market. Our guest is Cecilia Seiden of TransUnion to discuss their 2022 consumer holiday shopping report. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. 
Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. Thanksgiving has come and gone, and here we are in the month of December, which means the holidays are upon us. And for most of us, that means online holiday shopping. Cecilia Seiden is vice president of TransUnion's retail business, and she joins us to discuss the findings of their new 2022 Consumer Holiday Shopping Report. Consumers are much more concerned about fraud this year, so it's really critical that retailers create a noticeably secure shopping experience to make them comfortable while balancing the need for user experience and efficiency. Um, As a lot more consumers have been part of a data breach or they've experienced fraud, their concerns about fraud are rising and their perception of security measures are evolving as well. The second is that while the pandemic supercharged online shopping last year, we're actually seeing a shift in how much holiday shopping consumers are planning to do online. So while e-commerce is certainly here to stay, the in-store experience is still very important across generations. And then the third is that the stakes are much higher this year. So expectations for a great online shopping experience have raised the bar for what retailers need to deliver, while at the same time lowering the threshold for what drives consumers to abandon their carts. Well, let's go through those one at a time. I mean, uh, in terms of consumer attitudes and reassuring them that your site is secure, what sorts of things are, are they looking for? What can put them at ease? Yes. So we we actually asked about their preferences in terms of security features and what they'd like to see. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the features that they find the most reassuring is two-factor authentication. So one-time passwords sent by email or text. 80% of consumers cited those as being very important or moderately important. There were also additional features that gave them comfort. So biometric identification, such as a face ID or a fingerprint using their mobile device. Um, Image or text CAPTCHAs were also features that could help in that respect. And then also knowledge-based questions like, who's your childhood best friend? Um, What was the first car that you drove? Where supposedly only you should know that answer. So it it seems as though we've really reached a point with sophistication with the consumers where a Username and password just isn't going to cut it anymore. Yes, absolutely. And what I will say too is that, you know, what might have previously been viewed as an inconvenience and something that added friction to the purchase is now actually being seen favorably, right? People are looking for those measures to know that that retailer is protecting them and taking their identity and their data very seriously. So 60% of consumers now have a positive view of those measures with online retailers, which was an increase of 20% versus last year. Wow, that's a really interesting insight. I'm curious about uh, sort of the contrast between in-person shopping and online shopping. As as you mentioned, you know, I think the pandemic drove a lot of people to online shopping. But uh, can you provide some uh, some color onto why uh, that retail experience is still an important one? 
Yeah, absolutely. So what we saw this year is that only 17% of shoppers plan to do nearly all their shopping online, and that's down versus 31% of consumers in 2021. And we believe that's really driven by a desire for normalcy after the COVID-19 pandemic, where a lot of consumers who perhaps might have preferred to shop in the store, you know, were forced to adopt online shopping just for measures of health and safety. And what we found especially interesting is that Gen Z actually is more likely to shop in store than even millennials. I would have expected to see a linear relationship along the generations. And instead, we're seeing a little bit of a reversal of that trend. And we think that this is due to Gen Z's desire for experiences and authentic brand engagement. And that's really steering them towards those in-store experiences. So for the retailers, does that point to the importance of having all their bases covered, of, of having that, in, that in-person shopping experience, but also online as an option? That's exactly right. So, you know, people care about in-store, you know, they want the stores to be fresh. They want them to be clean, well-organized, easy to shop. They like that experience. But at the same time, there's certainly a subset of customers that are craving, you know, the convenience and the efficiency of shopping online. A lot of it has to do, obviously, with each person's individual situation. So millennials, for example, probably given the presence of children in their household, are much more likely to be shopping online. But we're also seeing increasing growth in that sort of omni-channel shopping, curbside pickup and um, buy online pickup in store, really picking up steam as well. Did you have any sense for what causes frustration among the shoppers here? As, as you mentioned, you know, leaving those carts abandoned. Yes, we did. We probed into some of those reasons. So some of the main ones were really around fraud, actually. So we saw that uh, 31% of customers would abandon their cart due to fraud concerns, which was a 72% increase from last year. And 21% would abandon their cart due to insufficient security on the site, which was a 40% increase from last year. Outside of those fraud-related reasons, we also saw shipping costs, perhaps unexpected ones, popping up at the last minute, um, driving that desire to abandon the cart, as well as payment issues and a poor website experience. What are your recommendations then for the retailers? I mean, based on the information that you gathered here from consumers, how can they best go into this holiday season uh, and provide a, a good experience? Great question. So the first one that I would say is making sure that retailers have visible signs of fraud mitigation to the consumer. So some of those measures that we previously discussed, like two-factor authentication or image and text CAPTCHAs, are really important here. So maybe before, retailers thought that solutions that were unobtrusive to customers were sufficient or even ideal. But I think it's important now that consumers see proof that the merchant is providing a safe environment in which they can transact. The second one I would say is around that ability to quickly and seamlessly identify fraud. So many merchants have chargeback management solutions or guarantees in place, which certainly protects them in the event of loss, but it doesn't necessarily directly protect the consumer or help the organization become more effective at fighting fraud over time. Some of those chargeback solution providers are also incentivized to be really conservative to minimize their risk which can yield overly high false declines and lead to revenue loss for those retailers. So I would recommend that merchants look beyond chargeback solutions to alternatives like 
device risk, IP intelligence, behavioral analytics, um, and email and phone verification solutions. And that can really help them mitigate fraud in real time while still being invisible and seamless to the consumer and privacy safe. And that can help the retailer with you know, transaction results that help them make decisions to allow a transaction, manually review them, or provide challenge questions, or actually deny that transaction outright. So as e-commerce and card not present fraud continues to grow, you know, we expect that fraud and identity verification will remain a priority for both consumers and retailers. And retailers need to ensure that they're staying proactive in fighting fraud. The third one that I'll also mention is not forgetting about in-store fraud, especially now that more people are returning to the store and then omni-channel fraud with the growing use of curbside pickup and buy online. The omni-channel mechanisms are especially subject to exploitation because it's an easy way for fraudsters to evade detection. They don't necessarily have to update their address, which is a trigger for some fraud detection mechanisms. And that fulfillment window, right, it could be a two-hour pickup, is often too short for many retailers to do a thorough manual review. So that's where some of the solutions we talked about can also be very helpful. That's Cecilia Seiden from TransUnion. And joining me once again is Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Rob, it's always great to welcome you back to the show. Um, I saw a recent report from an organization called Meticulous Research, and and they were looking at the industrial control system security market. Uh, They're projecting that by 2029, that market is going to be worth practically $30 billion dollars. Um, I wanted to get your insight on this. Obviously, you're in the midst of all this. What does this indicate here to you? Yeah, so I, I'll give you the short answer, and I'll give you the long, drawn-out, nuanced, overly complex answer that I always do. <laughs> um, but the, the short answer is, it's a good thing, right? It's a good thing that people are seeing that the size of the industrial market is huge. Uh, and I think one of the mistakes that a lot of analysts made when they first started looking at this space is they asked the question not about what is this community, what are they trying to accomplish, what is the uniqueness here. What they asked and said was, how does this fit in my chart? Where does this go on a wave or a quadrant or whatever? Like, what, what category is this? And you would see like the, the various things that pop up with, yeah, there's firewalls, there's endpoint security, and there's ICS security. And it's like, what? Like, that's that's it's a whole nother market. It's not a category in your IT market. So what the analyst firm is really articulating, and a number of the ones that come out with these big kind of numbers, what they're what they're ultimately articulating is stop looking at this as a category in IT security. It is a whole new market. OT security. You could have OT specific firewalls, IDS, you know, endpoints, whatever else. Stop just thinking that that's a category inside of your existing market, um, which is the good thing. The long, overly nuanced answer is I, I think most of these numbers are made up. And I'm, I'm very glad that the analyst firms are trying. Somebody needs to try. But I've had to go through this exercise a bunch with most of these firms, really smart investment bankers, et cetera, because when you raise venture capital, especially in the early stages, one of your first questions is, what's the total addressable market? What's the size of the market? Because VCs don't really invest in products. Normally, they invest in big markets with good teams. That's really what they're looking for. And so that's a common question. So I, 
I've done my own bottoms up analysis of based on just the companies above a billion in revenue that are probably fundamentally going to invest in these types of areas for our product specific category. You know, for just the visibility detection response category, looking at just the industrial industries that we think are moving, not all the ones that could be there, but just the ones we think are moving and just the geos and just the customers above a billion, like all these qualifiers. And we still came up with like a $40 billion number that's considered bottoms up. So that would imply that the top down number is significantly higher than anything people's talking about. However, I will tell you at the end of six years of doing this, um, that my final understanding is nobody knows. Hmm. And it's just really big. And I got to tell you, in all the, all the uh, investments we've taken, probably my favorite conversation so far was BlackRock. So BlackRock led our D-Round. They're one of the largest, if not the largest, invest in the world, over a trillion dollars under management, et cetera. They're big. And I remember having the conversation with the partner, and I was like, okay, so... Anyways, here's the total addressable market and the size of it, because I was going to go through the same crap that everyone always... And he stopped me and said, Rob, I don't care. We're BlackRock. We know industrial is big. Our point of view is it's kind of everything that touches physics. It's huge. And there's no real reason to even try to size this thing right now. It's big enough to go after. The question is, why are you the right team? God, I love that. And I was like, okay, that I can dig into. So long story short, do I, I, would, I would expect there's folks that come out and go, oh, that number sounds too big. I would actually be in the opposite camp going, I bet you it's tiny in comparison. But when is the market moving? You know, what segments are you going after? What geos, et cetera, all come into that. So don't just think this is a big, big market. It's going to just be awesome. No, sales cycles, customer acquisition costs, all these things play in to how to look at this number correctly from an investment standpoint. Do you suppose that as time goes on, that this number will become clearer? That we'll be we'll have more data to throw at these estimates. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as people realize what even is made up in industrial, they'll do that. Like I'll normally get on a call with people, and like, yeah, cool. So we're doing like electric power and and oil and gas, and like, yeah, utilities. I'm like, yes, and also rail systems. And like, wait, rails have control systems? Like, yes. And we're doing data centers with building automation control systems. They're like, wait, wait, what? Underneath the cloud too? And so like, just anecdotally, by how many conversations I have with investment bankers, banks, analyst firms, VCs, etc., that we don't make it three minutes into the conversation before I have to explain kind of what all goes into industrial for them. I'm going to say that they're not considering all of industrial in these numbers. And the numbers are usually very biased by the companies that are already talking to you or talking to those analyst firms. Again, we've had this conversation before where like IT and security is talk, talking about, hey, let's talk about 5 or 10% budget increase to go after all this stuff. And it's like, no, OT is this whole new mission set that you haven't been doing, but now with the rise of digitization and connectivity, we have to do. Therefore, the budgets are going to be significantly larger going after a whole new mission set. Boards are absolutely aware and understanding of that. So your math, your calculation of what goes into it and the scope of it are both probably off. Therefore, yeah, it's much smaller than reality. And yes, over time, it'll get more clear. But I think that will be years in the making. All right. Well, interesting insights. Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, 
Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Varmatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Jim Hoshite, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.